welcome to the fourth episode of the Coriolis Effect. This episode is entitled, Are You Experienced? I'm Matthew. And I'm Dave. And today's episode is coming from the welcoming and tropical surroundings of Samar's Hammam itself, where Samar has just made us all at home with rose tea steeping in the copper pots and the hookahs are warming up. I'm finding the atmosphere here somewhat hot, so in fact I would normally be going for rose tea, but I've asked Samar's one of Samar's girls to bring me a nice tall glass of iced water with lime, uh, a lime squeezed into it. I think we know exactly what you are Samar's girls to come and squeeze, don't you, Matthew? <laughs> I anyway. don't know what you're talking about. I really don't. <laughs> uh, anyway, you're meant to be telling us what's coming up. Well, if you let me. So coming up in today's episode, I am going to be talking a little bit about uh, XP and things uh, around that and that affect that. Uh, we've got... One of our players in the Hammam today with us, who will be talking about his experience of the game thus far. We will also update on the Spectral Corsair campaign a little bit later on, and the uh, the second episode of Matthew's campaign, the Mukafar campaign. We will have a talent of the episode a bit later on, and we've had some excellent feedback from a number of people, but in particular, Benjamin Rogers has sent us a few comments on some of the things we've talked about so we will look at that a bit later on and we'll have a bit of a debate about what we think he's saying and and, and our opinions on it yeah we, although i want to start off with another bit of feedback we got um uh we got a, a lovely message on google plus which is why we're here in the hammam today <laughs> uh and and that's from and yes. that's from ricard and troyer who is currently I understand engaged in writing or translating the um, the upcoming campaign that will be coming out from Free League Publishing, and he told us he was so inspired by our piece on Samar's Hammam uh, in the last episode that he wants to include a Hammam in uh, in the campaign. So we're looking forward to that. Can't, and, well, can't uh, say how to show it. Sorry, can't, can't say how delighted we are that um, some of the stuff we're doing here is inspiring. Uh, you know, lots of people to do some you know, do some stuff on the back of it. I think it's great and really appreciate that. And it's kind of why we're doing the podcast, isn't it? It is very much so, completely. But I um, can't wait for it to come out and then I can go to whatever page it's on and say, that was my idea. <laughs> what do you mean? You say it just like Gollum? Uh, no, I'm saying it <laughs> just like um, Vic and Bob, Bob Mortimer, back in the early episodes of uh, uh, Vic and Bob's first show on Channel 4 where Bob Mortimer would always say at some point, that was my idea. Um, <laughs> okay. Uh, moving moving on. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, nobody's going to know who Vic and Bob are with our international audience, are they? No. So no, we ought to move no. on. And we ought to move on, I think, to, um, uh, to cover a little bit of news about Free League themselves. Yeah. Uh, the Any nominations just came out. And uh, not only... Have Free League got a number of nominations for uh, Tales from the Loop, but uh, Coriolis, the Third Horizon, has already won one of the judges' Spotlight Awards. I'm never quite convinced that I know exactly what the Spotlight Awards are, but I know that the any system, you know, judges, uh, they have different judges every year, they're drawn from the fan community, and I think it's a kind of way of saying, okay, who would you give an award to? so that that doesn't influence your judging anymore on on the actual 
shortlisting and everything else that goes forward. So the Spotlight Awards, I think, are kind of taken out of the running for everything else so that there's no favouritism. But that's really good to know. It Uh, is excellent to know. And recognition of what we know already about how great the game is. Yes. And uh, if you haven't been involved with the Innies before, it's worth pointing out that anybody can affect the uh, the winners of the Ennies. Anybody can vote for the winners from the shortlist and you can also name your favourite RPG publisher. And I think I know what we'll be doing this year, don't you, Dave? <laughs> I think so. Uh, but I don't want to influence your votes at all, but from the 11th of July, you can go to the Ennies website and put your own votes in. And there's lots of great games there. I, I know I'm going to be voting on all sorts of games uh, and yeah, and I'm going to be voting for my favourite publisher as well. And I urge everybody who's listening to do the same. Yeah, I think uh, I think we all will, won't we? Talking of other things that are uh, on on my mind at the moment. So I've been um, thinking about what to run in our campaign, Matthew. As we've we've discussed, I'm currently running the Song of Ice and Fire role playing game, but we've played that for a number of years now. And there's a there's another Swedish publisher, Jan Ringen if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Um, my wife would kill me. She is Swedish, so I should get her to pronounce these stuff, really. But um, they've got a game that's come out recently called Simbaroom. And I've been having a little look at that as a, a strong candidate for for the next game I'm going to run for our group. And the 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 setting is... It's ancient times. Uh, the place is ruled by a civilization called Simbaroom. It's quite sort of... Uh, it's got a bit of a D&D feel to it. Some of the mechanics... I've uh, got a bit of a D&D feel to it as well. But the thing I love about it is the the sort of the dark and gritty feel that it that, that I take from it. And I've got a really good idea to try and bring our campaigns down to something uh rather than the lords and the kings which is obviously what Game of Thrones is all about, down to the really down to the little people. So somebody who lives on a on a pallet in the corner of a of an inn or or a barn somewhere in a in a in a in a, uh, in a fantasy town. And I really like the idea of this, and, and the feel I want to get is is one that I um, that I actually got from a, from a game that you've never played. I don't think Matthew very wisely, but I used to play a lot called World of Warcraft, which I guess a lot of people will recognise. And in that, there's a town called Gilneas, and it's a town of humans, but it's a town of uh, of werewolves. Now, I'm not suggesting that my campaign is going to be about werewolves, but it that that town in the game gives a really good haunted dark gritty feel that i would quite like to uh recreate so the game simbaroom the adventures in ambria and davokar where i'll probably set it in one very narrow location to begin with to try and get that effect yeah i had a look when you mentioned this to me a bit before and already the 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 sort of adventuring area in the basic core book for Simba Room is a relatively small one isn't it? It is. But you're looking at narrowing it down I'm guessing somewhere on the edge of that forest so so that um, lots of scary things can come out of the forest and keep us occupied huh? Yeah very much so but I want to make the uh, uh, the aspirations of the players aren't going to be highfalutin and you know it's going to be where the next meal comes from how do I how do I protect my friend my family my you know whoever it may be from Really little threats and problems, yeah, and, rather know, than big that's threats. All my character in Song of Ice and Fire has been trying to do, just because he's got mixed up with all the lords and ladies that the other players play. <laughs> you know, all I look forward to is my next meal and where that's coming from, and the comfort of a uh, a woman. Um, <laughs> although I have to point out, there's no sex involved with my character. Not after that battle. 
No. No, well, it's no. funny that your, your, your character with uh, Marco Salt, his name is, with such low aspirations, has ended up being a uh, international whorehouse owner, uh, a la uh, Peter Stringfellow, um, and has unfortunately taken a very nasty wound, which means that um, you'll never be fathering children ever again. No, no. Exactly. So uh, so if I'd kept my aspirations and my ambitions at the level that I've always felt they were in my heart, then maybe none of those terrible things would have happened. But when you get mixed up in kings and lords and all of that, then it all turns to pot, doesn't it? It does. It's your own silly fault, obviously, Matthew. And uh, <laughs> I hear that after uh, introducing you to Western in the last episode, you've also kicked in for that. I have. Yes, um, I'm a total sucker for a, a good-looking kickstarter. And um, yeah, so I've put in for that. Look forward to getting that. I've now got three things on my kickstarter list to, to, to come. One is um, Mechatron, the Mutant Year Zero um, update or expansion. The the next is Talislanta uh, and, now, and now Western. So looking forward yeah. to getting those as soon as I can uh, yeah, get my hands on them. Excellent. Well, we ought to move on to Coriolis. We ought to. And I think um, we're going to start off with your piece on experience points. Yes, let's uh, let's take a listen. Take a listen to this. When I first opened up my Coriolis rulebook and started looking through character creation, I saw the rules on character relationships and the instruction to choose a player character buddy and PC personal problems. As an experienced player and GM, I didn't pay them too much attention. I know my players and there's no need to prompt or force them into making backstories that intertwine with one another, and they are very adept at thinking up compelling personal problems for them to tackle. So when I started my campaign, I didn't expect my players to follow these rules when fleshing out their character relationships, and I didn't make them choose a PC buddy either. We played the opening scenarios. Relationships developed, were tested in trying situations, have changed, and were tested again. I awarded experience points on the basis of good role-playing, interesting ideas, and in-game achievement with little, if any, reference to the rules for awarding XP. Then I became the player in Matthew's campaign, with my combat engineer bounty hunter Yafet Otho. Matt's approach as GM was different to mine. Where I had brushed over the specifics of the relationship's rules and how they affect the awarding of XP, Matthew had chosen to follow them closely, so at the end of the first scenario, which was brilliant fun by the way, I ended up a little bit frustrated by being tied so tightly to those rules. It got me thinking about the way the rules are set up, not just for creating characters and awarding XP, but also in relation to the closely linked system they offer for driving player relationships and behaviour. So I went back to the book to have a good look at what it says. So as I said, during character creation, the rules push you to specify your relationship to every other player. Choose one as your special PC buddy and identify your personal problem. In addition, you randomly roll for your icon, the one under which you were born, and the one you are then expected to behave in accordance with. This is intended to make your players think about their backstory, define their character and the way they might play them, and will offer interesting plot hooks to help the GM frame some really good scenarios. Then your characters are awarded XP based on how you play out those different influences on the basis of your answers to a limited list of highly specific questions listed on page 28 of the book. So what's wrong with all that, I hear you ask? In principle, 
nothing. In principle, it is, of course, a good thing to encourage players to develop complex three-dimensional characters. But I do have a few thoughts about how the Coriolis rules direct you to do this, and the potential unintended consequences that this may have. I will caveat these thoughts by saying that this is my take on the rules, and it goes without saying that it's up to each GM to decide how strictly, or not, they want to follow them. My first thought is that forcing these character relationships, rather than letting the players develop these ideas organically, seems just that, a bit forced. And the way the rules try to help you do this might also be potentially unhelpful. The book offers character relationship examples to help you get started. But a lot of these don't relate to aspects of your own character, about which you would expect to have control. Instead, they impose character traits and attitudes on other players and their characters, telling them how they should feel about you. For example, under the fugitive archetype on page 35, examples include PC so-and-so wishes you harm, or PC so-and-so knows your secret, or under artist on page 31, the examples include PC such-and-such is hiding something, or PC such-and-such appreciates your art. It's not for one player to tell another player what their character is like. Why not just let the players evolve their relationships as character creation moves on and decide between themselves? And what if a player wants to play a PC that doesn't want to have a PC buddy? So for that reason alone, I'm not a fan of this process. But then, linking these directly to a limited list of highly specific questions to earn XP risks driving behaviour that makes the players focus on ticking boxes in the game rather than just role-playing and earning XP through good play. I mean, come on, who hasn't metagamed at some point in their role-playing career? I still feel a bit bad, even after all these years, about the time we invited new players at school into our D&D game, only to kill them for their starting money. But anyway, this rule feels proscriptive to me, and it goes to compound my earlier concerns. So let's take a look at these specific questions. The first one is, did you turn up to the game, for which you get 1 XP? Why just turning up? Why not for doing something? Why not for contributing to the game or achieving some success in the scenario, either as a group, if you want to really encourage collaborative behaviour, or as an individual, or why not for both? Next, you were asked, did you overcome a difficult challenge, with the added caveat that it needs to help your crew reach its current goal? Why not just overcome a difficult challenge? Um, what does this actually mean? In the first scenario of Matthew's campaign, I, along with my in-game and real-life brother, both faced down an evil gang boss and successfully took out some chasing guards. Are either of those, or both taken together as they form part of one extended scene, worthy of an XP under this question? Matthew didn't think so. The third question is, did you put yourself or your crew at risk because of your personal problem? This isn't as simple as it looks. Not all personal problems lend themselves to earning experience under this question. In my Spectral Corsair campaign, three of the characters have what I call active problems. An addiction, a hatred, and money troubles. Easy things to roleplay on the player's own initiative, and so easy to tick this experience box. The others have reactive problems. Either the law or bounty hunters are after them. 
These are more plot hooks for the GM, and are much harder for the players themselves to fulfil the question and earn that XP. And in any case, I don't want my players having these questions in mind, and maybe influencing the way they play, simply to tick that experience box. It also might encourage some players, as they get more knowledgeable about the game, to metagame in future campaigns, and create characters specifically to make earning XP easy, rather than the character they'd really want to play. Decent players may not think along these lines, but regardless, this all feels like a bad thing to me. Questions 4 and 5 cover learning something new about yourself or another PC, and did you sacrifice or risk something for your PC buddy? Again, both of these risk forcing player behaviour down a narrow road to answer the question and earn an XP. What if the scenario didn't give you the chance to fulfil these? Do you do something forced or weird just to meet the question? And what if you tried to risk something, but events outside your control prevented you? And what if you want to play a quiet loner and don't want a PC buddy at all? The final question is have you acted in accordance with your icon? That's fair enough, but all good role players should be thinking about that anyway. But there might be fascinating stories to be told where you rebel against your icon, or as an atheist who has no icon. But in doing so, you'd lose opportunities to earn experience points, and I don't think the rules should discourage exciting storytelling. There is also an impact upon the GM as a result of all this. As the GM, I want to set scenarios with loads of scope and freedom for the players to do what they want or to tackle the challenges I place before them in any imaginative way that they choose. I don't want to feel like I have to plan every scenario to ensure equal opportunities to earn XP, and risk turning every game into a generic session aimed at meeting all these questions. I don't want this to sound like I'm being overly negative. I love this game, both as a GM and a player, and the second scenario in Matthew's campaign, played last weekend, was, for me, a triumph of simple storytelling and collaborative character development and loads of fun. And of course, if GMs want to run the game strictly to the rules, that's entirely their call. But for me, the GM can, and should, be making these XP judgments themselves, rather than relying on the rules to do it for them. This will allow the GM to control the pace that XP is earned, and can really call out excellent gaming by the award of extra experience. Yes, of course, it's a good aspiration to encourage good role-playing, and rewarding good play with XP is right and proper. But in my opinion, you don't need specific rules to make it happen. You need the GM to do his or her job instead. That's really interesting. I've been thinking about experience points as well. And um, I'm wondering whether with uh, the perception we've discussed and uh, we'll be discussing later on in this episode as well with, with Tony when he joins us, uh, you know, this, this slight problem with the dice mechanic that some players feel that... Uh, uh, they're incompetent that they fail too often. I wonder whether there could be experience points awarded for failure. Yeah, that's an interesting idea. I think the um, I think the point I'm trying to make in uh, in the piece there is that you know it's, it's up to the GM to decide to, to to use their judgment as to what what deserves some experience or or not. And you know, the rules as written, I think, might be. Really, you know, really good for inexperienced people who've come new to role-playing games and and need a little bit of prompting in the right direction to get the most value and and fun out of the game. But otherwise, I think uh, certainly for me anyway, uh, it's better to try and do it yourself. Don't don't be 
hemmed in by uh, particularly the you know the questions that are asked. I guess, of course, uh, a GM or players could add extra questions to that list if you wanted to. But yeah, of course, um, as you say, you know, GMs can do what they want in their own game. Um, of I'm course. playing D and D at the moment with a GM who doesn't bother with experience points. Every now and then, he says, "Put yourself up a level." And yeah. you know, the times when he says that, it feels appropriate. Nobody feels like they're being held back, and nobody's having to do the accountancy that comes with experience points in Dungeons and Dragons. So, yeah. when you've got a, a an idea of the rhythm of the game, uh, then you can do what what you want as a GM with experience points. You know me, though. I always like to follow rules as written. Uh, at least to begin with, just so that I can begin to get a flavour for uh, the natural rhythms of the game as intended by the authors yeah, before so, yeah. I start mucking about with them. Yeah, and I, and, I, and I get that. And I think there is a very different experience between the two games that we've played. We can, uh, we're, we're going to talk a bit about the second scenario in the Mukafar campaign later. But I mean, the one thing I'll just draw out here was in the first scenario, following those very strict questions, uh, I ended up with one XP. Two, I think you got, didn't you? After argument, I had to, I had to, I had to debate. <laughs> That's with not you argument. Quite strongly. That's discussion, Dave. I had to say, well, argument by argument, I mean debate. Uh, I had to debate with you quite strongly to get you to relent and give me that second XP. But then in the second scenario, we ended up with something like eight XP because you went, we went through the list and we were able to tick, uh, you know, tick the box on on. On, on all of them, and ended up with loads of XP for a scenario that was actually probably a bit shorter and less involved than the previous one. So again, I think, again, it's down to each individual GM how they want to run it. Yeah, I, but I think I can explain what was going on with those two. You had a pretty easy run in that first scenario, actually. I mean, yeah, you know, as you mentioned in your piece, you took out the, um, the gang boss's goons, but I did only give you two goons, and I didn't spend any darkness points, remember, because I wasn't spending any darkness points, and one of the things I might have done, of course, is have reinforcements turn up at that point. Whereas I was spending darkness points like rain in the second <laughs> scenario. Yes, it was a you know it's a, it's a very tight scene. We'll tell people about it a bit later on, and it, it was effectively one scene. It's what I like to think of as a bottle episode. But um, but yeah, I was spending darkness points like water there, and and I think that was tougher. You know, there, there was a point when Tony might well have been effectively knocked out of the game but uh, uh, so you know I think you deserved those experience points you got in the second scenario and yep. frankly you didn't deserve very many in the first <laughs> <laughs> that's fair enough and there is no rule that says that one scenario has to have the same number of XP as you know, any other scenario so that's that's absolutely fine I'm not really complaining again it's just your you know your much uh, you're not complaining much <laughs> No more than usual, anyway. I tell you what, I've got a brilliant idea. Why don't we get somebody who's entirely independent of you and I to to talk through these issues with us? Let's get Tony in the room, shall we? Brilliant. So I'd like to introduce Tony. Now, uh, our listeners, uh, if you'd listened to the first episode, will have heard Matthew and I both talking about Tony. Um, he's my brother. He's uh, the reason why both Matthew and I are uh, or got our entrance into role-playing games. And he's been playing role-playing games for as for as uh, a lot as long as we have. So we really wanted to get a player's perspective. 
Surely he's been playing role playing games for longer than we have. Oh, maybe slightly longer, yeah. But <laughs> well, not, I had, a little bit longer. I've probably had a longer gap in the in the middle, yeah. in between kind of going to university and then getting back into it afterwards. That's true. So if I can finish my introduction. Sorry, Thanks, sorry, Dave, carry on. So, Tony is, is my brother. Um, he's... Uh, <laughs> Matthew's yawning now. Um, what we wanted to do is get a player perspective on the two games that we're running. Matthew's running them and I'm running them. But... Uh, on things like dice mechanics, starting his points, space combat, um, just to get Tony's perspective as a as a player. The first things first, though, the key question that clearly Matthew wants to ask is, who's the best GM? Obviously I am. Obviously I am. <laughs> Children. No pressure. <laughs> anyway, the second question is... Um, uh, Andy's the best GM. <laughs> 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 okay. oh, well, that's, we that's, should have said who's the best Coriolis GM. That's, uh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. We went specific with the question. Now, well, Matthew and I clearly put in our place there. Let's yeah. drop that one for now. Yeah. Um, but before we get on to those particular things, Tone, are there any, you know, what's your first impressions? What are your, what's your impression of the game as a whole? Um, I'm loving the game so far. Actually, I think the setting, the setting is great. The whole space thing, the kind of space travel element of it has a real kind of elite feel about it, which I really like. The mechanics are very kind of simple and intuitive to understand. And the kind of whole setting with the the icons and the kind of the religious kind of element to it is mm. is very interesting. So yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I'm really interested by your um, reference to elite because obviously that was a big thing when we were kids at school yeah. on the BBC. Still is now elite dangerous. And, and now it's it's, it's, it's it, it still is a big thing, obviously, but a different sort of big thing. But I'm I interested to know how you know we've we've all played a lot of traveller. What 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 differentiates the space travel and that. The, the, the spaciness of Coriolis from Traveller? That's a good question. It's so long since I've played Traveller, I can't really remember the, the specifics. But this, the kind of the elite kind of thing is, is the kind of the space lanes that, that you travel in, the, the way you have um, the portals that, that are kind of near the stars and then you have to travel within the system. Mm. The way that, because we haven't really done much space travel yet in your campaign, Matthew, but in no, Dave's no, no, we proud. have. Yeah. And the way Dave <clears throat> maps out the, the systems with the stars and maybe there's a if it's a binary system then the portal will be next to one star and you'd have to travel quite a long time to get to the other star that's all very kind of the way elite dangerous actually the modern version of it works not mm. maybe not so much the original yeah that's an interesting thing because i think the way i've run it is probably different from the way the 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 game suggests so i think although it doesn't say clearly that uh, it, it, you know, out of the box coriolis the every star and like you know, the the binary and the trinary stars all have portals around them. Now I didn't play it that way, but I have some of them have portals and some don't. But again, it's just a, a, an element of the way you can play the game any way you any way you please, really, as a, as a GM. But on you mentioned dice mechanics a little earlier than tone. So I mean, we use the word elite. Clearly, elite is not <laughs> any no. of our characters in any of this. <laughs> um, but so we've talked before about having a big handful of dice and then just being frustrated by not getting the level of success that you like. How, how has it felt for you? Well, I think it's interesting because it's a very it's a very simple mechanic that feels quite intuitive, but actually I think the probabilities are probably aren't quite what you expect there to no. be. So you think, oh, I've got six 66s, there's a pretty good chance that I'll get a six when I roll those. But actually it doesn't always seem to work out like that. And there have been occasions, there's at least a couple of occasions. So in your campaign, Dave, I'm the pilot, and I have a pilot skill of nine. And I've had... At least two occasions where I've rolled my nine dice, got no sixes, 
prayed to the icons, rolled all nine dice again, and still not got any sixes. Yeah, I remember that moment. Yeah. So, so that's probably quite a low probability of that of that happening. But I, I think it feels like the probabilities of getting the sixes are are lower than you intuitively feel. Mm. I think the way they should be. Yeah, sorry, Tim. The way I felt is that the the one game that I've played with, with Matthew's campaign is you get a big handful of dice and it feels like you should be able to do something really epic with all these dice and then you roll them and you if you're lucky you get one six so it's not as epic as it uh, as it might as it might kind of imply it should be yeah there's an interesting bit of a discussion from I'm just trying to remember who actually talked about it Chris Chris Wolf on the G plus group actually had a real insight about what he thinks might be part of the player perception. Mm. And that is when you're rolling a D20. The game feel thing. The game feel thing, yeah. So um, if you're rolling a D20 and to hit in um, something like D&D, you've got a 14 to hit or something. Actually, your chances of hitting with our Coriolis die system are pretty similar to that. But when you roll a D20 and you miss by, you get a 15, you feel, God, I was so close. Actually, yes. you're not at all close. You know, it's just a number, one mm. of 20 numbers. and But there's that feeling of being close that yeah. you don't really get when you're rolling a whole bunch of dice. And, oh, you know, even even in other dice pool games like um, uh, like Old Vampire, where there were Vampire the Masquerade, yeah. where you had a number of, you had to get a number of successes to, to succeed and you're rolling D10s. And you might, you know, you might need six successes to, to succeed, but actually you only got five. So again, you get that idea of of, I of think, being close. I think there's an interesting sort of uh, reflection of that. Ooh, I was so close. Sort of feel in that we've had a few occasions uh, in my campaign where they've rolled the dice and they've ended up with five fives and then no sixes, and they've gone, oh, look how many fives you had. Yeah. So again, yeah, I think there kind is... Of, that kind of feel of, yeah, oh, that was really close. Yeah, it wasn't really. so it still is there, but I, I, I think it's more it's more obvious on that D20 missing by one. I suppose the other, the other element with the Coriolis mechanic is that you've got a... It's not just a kind of binary succeed or fail. You've, you've got a kind of feeling that you've got a chance to succeed really well. If you get more than one six, yeah. then you can get other kind of benefits so if, if it's an attack roll you can do critical hits and stuff as a field so you, you've, you've always got a chance that you can not just succeed but actually succeed spectacularly well if you get you know if you get lucky and i think there's a there is an it's incumbent upon the gm to really encourage players to think imaginatively about how they do these things because i i find it's more so in the mutant year zero campaigns i've run but also in this a little bit, it's easy to fall back on, oh, I'll just have the extra damage from mm. the extra sixes that you roll. Whereas actually, there's loads of interesting stuff you could do, given the, the space to be a bit more imaginative about how to use your successes. Yeah, I, I like all the sort of parry options and, and you know and, and increasing your initiative and things like that. Mm. I'd, I'd, I'd like to see people using those more. And I guess the, there's... In, in return for that, the GM should be more imaginative as well when it comes to somebody rolling a whole bunch of successes on what actually was a pretty binary pass-fail roll on yeah. some of the other skills as well. Having so, some unexpected bonus effect yeah. to use the language yes. from technology. But overall, 
I'm not getting the impression that you or any of our players in either of our... Well, I, I, obviously I don't play in his campaign because I only play with quality GMs. But um, uh, in either of our campaigns... Uh, I think you need therapy, Matt. This <laughs> yeah. has become a real problem for you over the last couple of decades. Anyway, carry on. Uh, but uh, I'm not playing in his because we live a long way away. Um, I don't get the impression from either group that the dice mechanic is a problem. No, I like I like the dice mechanic. I mean, you do get... There is quite a bit of frustration when you do fail rolls, but the reaction is generally a kind of wry laugh rather than <laughs> anything anything else. It's kind of it's kind of an enjoyable part of the yeah the game. So, so no, I, I actually like the dice mechanic. Is that is that something you feel the same about darkness points and the way that I've been running them? Uh, yes, absolutely. I think so. Again, Matthew, in your campaign, you didn't. We've only done the one. No, no, you're uh, going to get darkness <clears throat> points later on when we so sit down. So we get to see really how how you're going to use them. But Dave, in your campaign, um, and while I, I kind of hate to compliment you too much, I think you've used the darkness points really well. Fifteen love between me and Matt then. <laughs> <laughs> um, really well to kind of introduce narrative elements that make perfect sense. So kind of a couple of examples that spring to mind immediately. There was one, I think it might have been the first or second scenarios, where we were delivering some medicines, I think, to a group of Draconites who are f a first-to-come faction. My character is the, the pilot, and um, I really hate the first-come. That's your character problem, isn't yes, it? Yes, yeah. it is. Um, and this group of Draconites basically tried to swindle us out of paying the price that we'd agreed um, and obviously we were trying to negotiate uh, the price but you then spent a darkness point and made me basically completely see red and lose it <laughs> and launch a completely reckless and um, attack on the Draconites in the ship basically completely risking our, all our lives and, <laughs> and just going completely mad and actually that made perfect sense narratively for my character to do that it's the kind of thing that even though that's my character's problem, you might not naturally roleplay that because it's not necessarily beneficial for your characters, but it made perfect sense narratively for my character to completely completely lose it and lose control. And, mm. and So how did that go? Did you just say, did you take away all your player agency, as it were, and say, here's a darkness point, go mad! Or, or was there a bit of negotiation? How did that happen? Um, I, think, I think you pretty much... Uh, said, yeah, you, here's the darkness point. You've completely lost it. You're you're attacking. Your the I, ship is I, heading in, and you're firing again. No, I don't. I think I think what I said was, you're not having this. You hate the first come, and you, you've seen red. And I think that's where I left it, mm. um, leaving it to you to fly the ship down and hover it outside their tower, and and threaten them. Um, yeah, maybe that's happened. I can't really remember. But anyway, I think that was that was really good because it was it was completely consistent with. That my character would just become so angry that he didn't know what he was doing. Mm. I think the point there is actually it's a good one that you raise, Matt. Um, not that I didn't want to praise you too much under the current <laughs> circumstances. Is that when, when as a GM you are using a darkness point to activate a character's um, problem? Problem. You should just say, "I'm activating your problem," and then leave it to the player to then translate that problem into how they then behave. Yeah. Which would probably be something very similar, yeah. rather than saying. This uh, is how you, you must do it that way. Yeah. And yeah, I mean that may be how it happened. I mean, it was yeah. it, this was kind of a couple of scenarios ago. So it was ago, probably a couple, yeah. a few months ago, and my memory is not what it was. <laughs> so that might well have been how, how, it, how it happened. But I, I think another. I don't know. Sorry, yeah. Um, the other example that springs to my mind is 
with the character Carter and his addiction for, of cybernetics when he was umming and ahhing about cutting the arm off one of the people you'd broken and then I spent a darkness point and said you're doing it so now, under those circumstances I did direct him yeah. to try and cut the arm off I guess it was something he was th- considering doing yeah. already anyway um, the other th- example that I was thinking of was a kind of bit of a, a lighter one and more of a, a bit of a comedy moment um, which was we'd been attacked by I think it was the Zelosians wasn't it they'd boarded us we'd fought them off um, and the engineer had we'd taken captive two of the boarders the engineer had killed one of them the other one we'd locked in an airlock um, and the engineer decided to let the icons decide his fate and flip the coin and the coin came down in his favour so we decided to let him live but you spent a darkness point to activate the curse on our ship and the ship decided to open the airlock on its own yeah. and evacuate this poor guy into space to kill him so it didn't really affect anything narratively it's just quite a funny a funny little moment not for the NPC not for yes, him no. <laughs> for the rest of us it was just kind of a slightly amusing yeah. moment which takes us into space and before we move on to that there's oh, one, yeah. one other thing point to make about darkness points but my slight my only real reservation about them so far uh, is that and it's really about about us players and how we and how and when we decide to pray to the icons and give you darkness points because I feel maybe we've been guilty in your campaign Dave, of, of being a bit too free with them and it gets to the point where you've you've had a massive stack of darkness yeah. points and it gets to that point and it kind of feels like almost there's no there's no additional cost to us as players to giving you any more because you've got so many already. You can do what you like, pretty much. So you might as well keep. <clears> we might as well keep pressing because yeah. actually you've got so many. Us giving you another one makes no real difference. Yeah, I think but we've by got, the end of the campaign, you are going to be in we've, such we've, deep shit. <laughs> so maybe that's a kind of a mistake on our part of being a bit too rash with praying to the icons early on in the in the scenarios. Possibly because, because now it feels like well we might as well because because you, you're actually free to do what you like. I do I do anyway. wonder also, though, I mean, the, the scenario, the campaign, how it's worked out, has put you in quite a... Certainly in, Z- in Zalos, where we're now sort of on our third scenario, where in the other systems you've gone through them in one scenario, you've been put into some really tricky positions, and it's felt like life or death, and so you've then prayed yes. a lot more than you might otherwise have done so some of that is possibly my you know my responsibility for the scenario the way the scenarios have run some of it maybe is player choice for what you're choosing to do but i think maybe this is a this is a spike because you've been put in event after event that's been really quite difficult and yes possibly game ending if you don't get through it yes but that's you know that makes it an interesting yeah scenario so i wouldn't wouldn't see that as a as a flaw that you know makes it makes it interesting yeah, so it does lead in quite nicely to the whole portrayal of religion in this yes. this this world. This setting. I mean, this is something that is fundamentally different from Traveller, for example, where mm. there was zero religion. I don't think um, um, the original designers thought in any sort of rational universe there could be any religion <laughs> in the future. Um, now, this isn't such a rational universe, or maybe... It's not a universe that's... It's not a future that starts here. It's a future that started back when the 1001 Arabian Nights were being written and everything that was real then, like jinns and all that sort of stuff, is real now. So it appears the icons are real, that this is a, a deeply spiritual universe you're working in. How does, how does that feel to you as a well, player? I think, first of all, I think it's 
I think it's fairly clear that the icons are blatantly real and do exist. That's the kind of impression that I've I've got. We pray to the icons, and that, things happen. And things do. There is clearly a consequential effect of doing that. So I think that's that's almost a fundamental difference to the real world. Mm. And so the icons are real. So that's that makes the the fundamental difference really. And and does that make it more enjoyable? Um, I think the effect of that really is is it's in kind of character traits. So you've got we've always talked about the kind of characters' problems mm. that kind of get activated, but it also you've got your kind of icon talents mm-hmm. that you can use so it's really it's almost like another in terms of the game mechanics it just feels like a a kind of another skill or talent that you have available to use to yourself and obviously praying to the icons gives you that dice mechanic that lets you re-roll at the cost of providing a darkness point mm-hmm. to there, the GM there are a couple of kind of get outs the, 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 the setting describes the um, the foundation who are the Zenithian science organisation as being broadly speaking atheist not believing in any of this nonsense and also there's uh, you know a note to gms that if your players aren't into this spiritual monster type stuff then maybe that's just what people think and you can play it in a more rational sort of way which i have no inclination to do i'm really quite Hmm. enjoying this deeply religious universe um frankly i think we should have more religion in in more games i just played some Gloranthan rune quest a couple of weeks ago or ran a game of that and really enjoyed the whole thing with the runes and the gods there. But could you see yourself or any of your fellow players wanting to be an atheist, a rationalist in, in this world? Well, I think, again, because of it's a, an almost a reverse to, to the real world, I think the rationalists are the believers because there is genuinely strong evidence that, that the icons are real. So mm. the rationalists are the believers and the atheists are kind of the irrational ones yeah. because they're basically denying the clear evidence <laughs> so of the existence. A really good way of looking at it. Excellent. Yeah. You're, you're welcome into the uh, <laughs> into the order of the martyr. So I think the, the difference, maybe the difference is that in obviously in the real world, religions have these huge administrations to perpetuate their particular beliefs, whereas maybe atheists in the world of Coriolis are more a little bit more on their own yeah. and less... Oh, again, maybe there are kind of churches or cults of atheism who exist to kind of perpetuate the belief that the icons aren't real in the face of all the available evidence. Mm. We'll have to explore that down the line. Yeah, definitely. Cool. So the last thing we wanted to briefly talk about that you mentioned, Tony, was space combat. How do you, you know, how do you feel that's, that played out in the game? I think space combat is great. I think the actual mechanics of it are really simple and straightforward. The kind of the thing you mentioned in one of the earlier podcasts of kind of the American football grid yeah which basically means the only kind of spatial thing that matters is the distance between the ships really and their trajectories or whether Mm. they're going towards or away from each other but the really the part that makes it interesting is the interaction between the players so every um, role on the ship has a part to play in the space combat so the engineer has to allocate the energy the gunner obviously does the shooting the pilot does the flying and the captain gives the orders which is kind of where it comes in interesting the first space combat we had obviously we didn't really know how it's going to turn out how whether the our opposition was going to be massively more powerful than us and we were going to get completely pasted our captain was quite gung-ho and gave the order to go in and attack the engineer didn't agree with that order um, and so didn't allocate any energy to the guns um, only to kind of shields and shields and the engines so then it came to my turn as the pilot although i wanted to follow my captain's orders if I kind of turn around and headed towards the enemy to go into attack, 
I knew that our guns had no energy allocated to them, so we couldn't attack. Yeah. We couldn't attack, so I was kind of forced into disobeying my captain's orders because of what the engineer had done. Mm. So I basically had to turn tail and and run for it, even though that wasn't really what I wanted to do. I wanted to follow my captain's orders. I couldn't because of what the engineer had done, so that's kind of an interesting interaction between the players. It shows the critical role that the engineer's got. Yes. And, and how important it is for the captain to keep the engineer on side, I guess. <laughs> Although it also it's a great bit of drama, yes. isn't it? That feels like that could have come out of an episode of Firefly. Obviously yes. not on with Kaylee and Mal because it should have followed uh, Mal's orders. But some other some other episode in some later scene when I don't know Jane was in command or something. <laughs> <laughs> so that's interesting because the way it's been the space comics done it, it emphasises that player interactions above everything else really yeah. makes it interesting. That's brilliant. Is there anything else you want to say about the game, Tony, or about how brilliant I am as a GM? <laughs> Remember, it's 15 love to me at the moment, Matt. I think you're both excellent GMs. 30, well, well done, both of you. So I win. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's any doubt. I've very that, much actually. enjoyed all the games over the years that I've played where you've GMed. Right, yeah, but, bear think, in mind that I am running your character <laughs> after this conversation. But bear in mind that Matthew's always out to get me, so you're okay. Yeah. And I have got a stack of darkness points. <laughs> oh, yes. But I think um, before Matthew and I start fighting over who is the best, Tony, thank you very much indeed for your time. We would love to invite you back to a future podcast. Uh, yeah, I'd love date. to come on again. Great. Um, especially if you keep saying nice things about me. <laughs> That's mm, great. Cheers. Yeah. Thanks, Tony. Pleasure. Thank you. So, Dave, tell me how it's been going with the Spectral Corsair. Well, it's been going pretty much as it had been going... <laughs> before so our our heroes are still in Zalos they are uh, this last scenario they've been trying to rescue Alina who is the uh, the person with the information that, that they need and she's she's being put on trial by the Zalosians and is being put through the portal from Zalos A to Zalos B uh, but whilst conscious and awake to receive the the icon's judgment clearly that's not likely to be a good thing for her general health so in this last scenario, they, uh, they 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 beat they beat their way down to to the portal to intercept the 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 trial party and the ship. And there were there were a number of ships there, a number of Zalosian uh, wolfhound ships, which are class two cruisers, which are quite dangerous, quite fast. And they were escorting the Al Muhak, which is the ceremonial ship that fires the drone into the portal. And there was a number of other ships there as well who were who were um, people just tourists or or devotees coming to witness the uh, the trial of, of Alina the witch so they're there they're trying to maneuver themselves in a position they very nearly scupper themselves by drawing attention to themselves with one of the wolfhounds but they the the captain Leo Valdez has only got one leg at the moment he managed to use his manipulation score over the cons to convince them that the ship was just suffering from some communications trouble and they managed to get away get out of that so they went they then were chasing the the throne of Shahada it was called and they were anticipating that this drone was going to be a little sort of one-man coffin-sized thing. But this turned out to be a class two size vessel, but without any engines and that. It just gets fired from the ceremonial ship into the portal. So they'd had all mm. these fancy plans of doing a barn swallow, which suddenly was not going to happen anymore. They managed to chase after it using... So in the game, there isn't a rule um, that I've seen for, at least outside combat anyway... For trying to fly faster than your ship's speed will allow. Yeah. Um, so I came up with an idea that they could overcharge the engines in a similar way that you over uh, overcharge the reactor in combat to give them a burst of extra speed. 
because effectively this thing had been fired out of the ceremonial ship at twice the speed of their ship. So mm. I allowed them, allowed them to make a roll. They took some damage to the hull as a result of that. Um, but I think there might be a rule there uh, I could look at in future about doing something a bit more a bit more formal about overcharging your engine so you can fly out of combat but faster so you can traverse the solar system more quickly mm-hmm. so anyway they managed to catch up with the ship tony who's the pilot did a uh, excellent pilot role to get alongside it and this thing is spinning um like a like a spinning top with eight spokes or spikes out the side and each one of those has got a uh, an entry point on it and each one is is dependent on one of the icons so Tony managed to, to dock the ship, taking a little bit of damage, and they got on board. Once on board, they were watching out for a, a man called the Watcher, or Murakib, who is a, a Zelosian acolyte of great power and stature, who the Zelosians believe goes through the portal and is the only human being who can go through portals without being, without being asleep, asleep, without taking without any, any bad effects. So he's known as the Watcher, and he's there supposedly to watch the accused and watch the trial of the queues with the icons. So they were watching out for this fellow when they got on board the ship. And on board the ship, there was just one large chamber in the centre with a sanctum inside that. And the sanctum was very different. It's a portal builder relic, effectively, that's been built inside this ship. They couldn't find the Watcher initially. They did eventually find him in a hidden stasis pod. So he doesn't really stay awake during the whole thing. But it did give me an idea for a, a new icon talent possibly, called Icon Sight, that might actually allow people to go through portal space without being asleep. But again, something I'll think think about in future. And something we could perhaps talk about a bit when we come to talk about the Mookfart campaign. Absolutely. So, they found that Alina was suspended inside this sanctum, inside a green ball of energy. Um, and they tried to tried to, to get her from that. So, But every time they touched it, they, they received an electrical attack that damaged their, their mind points. So they were trying to drag her out piece by piece. Um, they tried shooting the energy, but unfortunately the energy would then just transfer that, that shot or that uh, weapon attack straight onto Alina. So Carter, who's the, the, the cybernetic soldier, fired a shot. He actually did a really got a really good roll and got five, five sixes, four or five sixes. Oh, that's um, pretty good. And he converted all that into damage rather than trying to roll crits, which was probably a good thing because the bullet was just directed by the energy orb straight through Alina's chest. Now, she survived that, didn't break her. But if he'd gone for crits, he might have killed her there and then, yeah. um, which he didn't do. So they managed to drag her out of that. Whilst they were doing that, the, 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 the spirits of the Sanctum were trying to resist this. And, and, that, and that ended up being three shadow wraiths who attacked uh, the people who were left on board the ship. And a sentinel um, who's in the book uh, that was effectively living inside the, the sort of the walls of the Sanctum. And this sentinel started emerging from the walls and tried to stop them. They managed to extract her in the end. But by doing so, both Carter and Morgan's character, uh, Ajit Mir were knocked unconscious, so they were broken by mind point. Mm. All this time, the, the the throne of Shahada and their ship, uh, the Spectral Corsair docked to it, is heading straight into the portal at full speed. So they've got a real time problem here about getting off board the ship, off the ship. With two of them down, and Leo Valdez with only one leg, trying to get off quickly, use of a darkness point meant he, 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 he broke his wheelchair on the way off. <laughs> the wheel came off, literally, his wheelchair. And uh, so the engineer, 8-Bit, suddenly found himself having to put himself plus three people plus the cat 
into stasis before they hit the portal, which he, he didn't quite manage. So they've gone through the portal. He did get, get them into, the, into stasis after a couple of minutes, but I then made them make an empathy roll to see how badly this exposure to the portal space um, would, would affect them. And two of them failed, and then I rolled on the mania table on page 337 to then see what, what effect this had. And one of them, um, Leo Valdez, is now affected by... Um, he can't see any uh, real future in life, and so he, he, he doesn't fear death, so it makes him fearless because he doesn't see any, any future. So he basically gets another character problem uh, in, the, in, that, in that sense. Mm-hmm. And, and then one of the others, it was uh, the engineer 8-Bit, got this role whilst he was putting the cat into stasis, so he now has a phobia of small furry creatures. <laughs> so um, whether they'll be permanent problems or temporary ones, I'm not quite sure yet. But the scenario ended as they sort of popped out the other side. The other thing they did that was really clever was, because if you remember, they'd got a second transponder from the Havilans as the, the price of rescuing the Havilans freighter. So what they did was they, they jury-rigged a escape pod with the Spectral Corsair's transponder. So when they were uh, trying to get to the, to the, to the drone to get to, to get to Alina, they fired this off ahead of them, a bit like a crybaby. So they've now disappeared off into, into space around the star Zalos B, so they're even deeper in Zalos territory. But the Zalosians aren't looking for them because they're going after the other... They're chasing the crybaby. They are. And that's where we've left it. So they're just coming out of stasis at the end of that for the next scenario. Well, I didn't realise you'd done all of that. And it's an amazing coincidence that we uh, we both dealt with portal space yes. <laughs> in, our, in our two scenarios. Yes, well, there's, there's just one thing I will point out. Um, in that game yesterday, um, we had the worst example of dice incompetence that we've had so far. So in the build-up to uh, chasing the drone, Agit was doing sensor ops rolls across all the other ships there. They wanted to see if there were any ships that might also disagree with what was happening that they could then call upon as an ally. And mm. Morgan rolled 63 dice. 63? Over how, a number... How, of... how did he get to roll 63 dice? Over over about 10 different rolls. Okay. Or, or 8 different rolls, um, sensor ops rolls. But he rolled 63 dice before he rolled a 6. <laughs> the 64th dice was a six and he was poor bloke he was just pulling his hair out so if anybody if any of our listeners can beat that then please let us know but i think for the moment morgan as agit mia in the spectral corsair campaign holds the prize that's amazing <laughs> I, I think that's you know what are the chances of that happening um, well my stats aren't good enough to uh, <laughs> no, to work to my, work that out neither. that's for sure if anybody wants to work that out who's who's good at maths then uh, yeah, that would be great. Yes, Do please. tell us, what are the chances of that happening? <laughs> of rolling um, 63d6 without getting a 6. Yeah. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Cool. But I think that probably brings us on to, to your campaign now, doesn't it, Matt? Yeah. It, it's an amazing coincidence that we were both looking at portal space at the same time. Uh, we ought to uh, explain a little bit about how we ended up playing that game. We're still trying to finish off my Fate campaign, which seems to be fated to be interrupted and replaced with Coriolis every time it's my turn to run a game. We will finish it because it's a great campaign and the the final scenario is going to be is going to be great even if we all die, but it's going to be well, great. Well, yeah, I hope I hope we're not building up the expectation now with these two cancellations. <laughs> and actually it doesn't turn out to be a, a damp squib, but let's leave that aside. Uh, I think we'll get to do that in November because 
Andy couldn't make it to that game, we decided the day before to run a game of Coriolis with just you and Tony. And uh, I had a couple of ideas uh, about what I might do, but one of them I liked so much uh, that I just went with it and um, ignored the other idea. Uh, and so we know that you're about to, uh, the, 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 the Mukafar, your ship, was about to go off on another adventure. And we cut forward a little bit into that adventure, uh, a little bit of mise-en-scene, to the point where you're doing the portal jump. Now, there was nothing panicky about that. Everybody got into their stasis in time. But what I had was you and Tony wake up in the middle of the portal jump. Yes. And dealing with the effects of being in portal space, which we you know, we discovered uh, lasts about a day. It takes about a day to, to make the portal jump. And you're not meant to be awake during it. I don't know how much we want to share about what actually went on because one of the other last minute decisions we made was to record it and i'd just been listening to the recording and i'm wondering whether we ought to share it with listeners here so in fact let me ask for some feedback i've got something i think that could make about three hour long episodes I'm not a massive fan of actual play podcasts myself, so I don't want to foist it on uh, followers of our feed unless people would actually like to listen to it. If they wouldn't, I think there's some interesting clips we could take out of it to illustrate various points. Uh, You know, again, because we're relatively new into playing this game, there's quite a lot of really quite clear discussion of applying the rules in certain situations. I think my feeling here, Matthew, would be that uh, unless people object, we can put it out there but it's in addition to what we're doing here. So it's not going to replace the scheduled podcasts that we're going to roll out every three or four weeks, however often we can uh, get together to get the content working. There will be in addition to that that we'll chuck them out. And if people want to listen to them, great. If people would rather not, then you're not waiting any extra time to come to the next the next episode in uh, the main Coriolis Effect podcast. Yeah. Uh, well, that's what I was wondering, whether we could do it in between our regular episodes, although I'm not quite sure how regular our regular episodes are but um uh, yeah in between uh, i'm just a little bit concerned if people you know discover them in their in their podcast feed and go i don't want to listen to that but we'll we'll cross that bridge when we come to it anyway do give us your opinions it will take us a, a week or so to put the first episode up if we do that so if we hear a massive scream from the internet uh, no <laughs> then we won't do that but um if we don't then maybe we'll put that up next weekend anyway not wanting to spoil that experience for any people who really do like listening to podcasts, I'll just say that I thought of what might happen. I didn't roll any of the dice that uh, it suggests you roll for people who experience podcast space. I thought it'd be more fun to explore <laughs> podcast. what might actually be happening. You just said podcast space. Podcast so, space. <laughs> I think people well, are experiencing podcast that space right now. That is the madness of the darkness between the stars, effectively. <laughs> Getting this podcast out every few weeks is obviously <laughs> having an effect on us all. Yeah, so, so on portal space, portal uh, space I, I meant yes. to say. So some of it actually, we met, well, I, I will say that the other thing I wanted to do was sort out some personal problems you and Tony had. Now, as you said earlier on in your piece, I asked you to follow the rules in character creation and come up with a personal problem. And obviously, as experienced gamers, you guys prefer to 
do that in play. So although you had obeyed my diktat and written something down, Andy and I have discussed his personal problem a lot and really fleshed that out, but we haven't managed to do that with either you or Tony. So I thought it might be fun to flesh that out in play. So quite apart from the effects of portal space affecting you and the issues that you dealt with there, there was also the inner space of your own character's psyches and the problems that you two have as estranged twin brothers and Mm. uh, the shenanigans that you'd written down on as problems actually getting worked out. And that worked really well, I felt. Well, I'd like to say that um, much as it pains me to, to say this, that was a absolutely fabulous scenario, and I really, really enjoyed it. I mean, the, the bottle scenario set in a very small area, in a very small space of time, worked really well. And the opportunity for Tony and, and I to talk through and build that, um, that backstory, whilst we were playing it out, and the prompts that you used, um, which, which again, I won't uh, reveal here, we can reveal it in another podcast if people don't want to listen to the actual recordings. But they basically prompted us to look into some of those some of those questions. And the upshot ultimately was that we did have a, a quite a good, interesting initial idea for our uh, our backstory together. But we changed it and we made it even more interesting as a result of the the scenario and the discussions we had. And then also we completely resolved any sort of really violent, lingering resentment that I might have had, Yafet, my character, might have had against Salah for his part in that backstory that's had a bad effect on me. So there were bounty hunters after me. But there was an excellent use of the rules, in fact, the use of uh, the mechanics, in that I needed to get Salah back into stasis after we'd cleared up the problems, but we didn't want to stay out of stasis any longer than we had to. He was almost broken in terms of his mind by what he'd seen. And I had to do a manipulation roll to get him into the stasis pod. So I did that. And I only had three dice, but I rolled three sixes. But it basically meant that with Tony's resistance to that, he would do what I wanted, but he would then ask me, he he could then ask me for something in return. And the thing he asked for in return was when we talk about all all this stuff and and I reveal all the history after we come out of stasis, that I'm not going to hold a grudge against him again, you know, on because of that. So that worked brilliantly because he it is his fault partly why bad things are happening to me, but it really resolved it really well, and it resolved it in the game through the mechanics of the game. The dice rolls brought us to that conclusion as well. It was just a really good uh, coming together of so many different aspects of Coriolis that I really love into what was a great, great story. It would have been brilliant on film. Yeah, it was really good. And it's brilliant. And I, I, I agree with you that that, you know, that's one of those rules that this is the manipulation skill we're talking about here, which is great when you're using it against an NPC. Uh, everybody's, I'm sure, very comfortable in, in doing that. But there's a certain level of discomfort. And this has been, you know, uh, the same throughout history when something like a manipulate a manipulation role is used against another player, because you're, in theory, taking away that player's agency if with a roll of your dice, you can force them to take an action that the player doesn't think their character would take. Yeah. And so this came up. You got a, a what would have been a critical success, but because it was an opposed roll and he had got a success, he knocked yours down to just two dice, which is, you know, and according to the rules, he has to do what you say, but he can ask for something in return. Yeah. And it was 
brilliant quick thinking on Tony's part <laughs> to was. ask for your forgiveness. Because although the players have worked out what the backstory is, this hasn't actually been said in story space yet. And uh, it, you know, it was promised that Tony was going to um, reveal his characters. Uh, I should say, uh, Salah, Tony's character, was going to reveal all to Yafet as soon as they were out of portal space. But now he's asked in advance for Yafet's forgiveness and that, that Yafet can't, can't take against him for what he's about to tell him. Brilliant. Right. I love that. And that really was a perfect end to the scenario. <laughs> yeah, I thought so too. And the, uh, and the barbecue lamb as well was, was quite a good end to the scenario too. <laughs> yes, that was, uh, that was good. Well, in terms of the recording, I've taken all the bits out where I'm basting the, I go out into the back garden to baste the lamb. So people don't have to <laughs> listen to me do that. Um, now, I just want to touch, come back on something you said about one of your characters, and that's Valdez, your one-legged uh, captain. He, uh, his wheelchair broke, and I think the solution you've come up with is something that you're going to turn into this episode's talent of the episode. When Leo Valdez, captain of the Spectral Corsair, took a critical hit, he knew things weren't good. When he rolled 62 on the crit table... He knew he was in real trouble, his leg destroyed and lifeblood pumping into the sudden vacuum. That he was saved was a minor miracle, but at the cost of his leg. When this happened, I looked to the rules for cybernetic or prosthetic limbs, knowing that Valdez would probably need a replacement one day. But I found little to help, so decided to work up some rules myself, leading to our talent of the episode. Cybernetic talent. Cybernetic leg. The cybernetic leg acts as a normal leg in all aspects, with two notable differences. Aspect A. When a critical injury is rolled to the legs, a roll is required to determine which leg has been hit, the natural or the cybernetic. If the cybernetic leg is hit, the critical effect as rolled is ignored, but the character takes a minus 1d3 agility penalty until the artificial leg is repaired. If agility is reduced to zero or less, the character can only move at a very slow crawling pace. Aspect B. Either. The leg has a concealed compartment to store items, giving the player two additional gear slots. Or. The leg contains a concealed and contractible scabbard or holster for one pistol-sized melee weapon or firearm that can be drawn rapidly as a free action. If the cybernetic leg is critically hit, any items stored in the compartment or concealed holster are destroyed. Cost. For Aspect A alone, 0 XP and 7000 Burr. For Aspects A and B together, 5 XP and 7000 Burr. Well, that one was short and sweet, Dave, but... um. Am I understanding right that what you're saying here is you can have any old cybernetic leg for Burr, but if you want to get the hidden compartment thing, then that's a Burr plus talent? Am I, is that how I'm understanding it? Yes, that's that's right. So the, you know, the the thing that drove me to this was, you know, with Valdez having lost his leg uh, in order to survive, and it was it's down on the critical table that... Uh, with that injury that the leg is lost so it wasn't it wasn't just me being <laughs> being cruel there was nothing in the book that just told us about or you know, cybernetic you know basic vanilla cybernetic replacements without any kind of 
uh, exciting gizmos or anything to it. And I thought, I thought about, well, then, you know, that, that, that's fine, but we could also make it into a bit of a talent as well to go along with the other cybernetic ones. So now I had a, a bit of a feel that the holster idea might be, might be like Robocop. Mm, the that's movie. what I was thinking. And you do gain a benefit if you have a cybernetic leg without that, because it reduces your chances of taking a terrible critical hit. So that's quite good. So that certainly shouldn't come for free. You could even argue that maybe that kind of cybernetic enhancement might be worth some XP towards, you know, a talent. Yeah, because it does have that thing about not being susceptible to critical hits, doesn't it? Exactly, yeah. So it, it does start the transition, potentially, of you becoming a bit of a robot. So you could, in theory, have cybernetic legs, could do a very similar kind of dynamic for cybernetic arms. So quite quickly, you could end up with a character that a lot of critical hits are just going to immobilise you rather than actually kill you. So mm. something to think about, but I think this one works quite well. Valdez isn't in a position at the moment to well, either use the XP to get a fancy cybernetic leg or have the money to buy a non-fancy cybernetic leg. But they might, you know, the, the point comes when they get out of Zalos space, if they ever manage that, whether I get a chance to recuperate and then they can hopefully find a bit of cash without getting themselves killed and do these things. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah. Now, back to feedback. Yes. And we've got a couple, uh, received this week, uh, a couple of emails, uh, both from uh, the same guy, Ben Rogers. And he raises a couple of points that we thought it was worth actually um, reading out and and discussing uh, before the end of the programme. So um, let me take the first one. He, he sent two emails, one after episode two and one after episode three, or one after he'd listened to episode two and three. He's been binge listening, which is great. Um, <laughs> uh, one, as I say, he sent one email after each episode. So let's let's take them in order. Now, cutting to the chase in his first email, he talks about uh, the use of DPs and says, however, I have to counsel against something you suggested in the podcast, Dave. When talking about using a DP to trigger a player's problem, you force the PC to take an action, chopping off a victim's arm. I suggest that, as GM, you should never usurp control of a player's character like that. Using darkness points to trigger player characters' problems shouldn't usurp player control. Instead, triggering something like an addiction should mean that the PC faces a penalty due to their lack of focus unless they give in, possibly by chopping off the arm or some other solution. But a GM should never remove player agency and mandate what they do. So Dave, he's calling you on your use of DP to take away a player's agency. How do you plead? Guilty as charged? Um, well, if it prevents me going through a trial of the icons, then yeah, of course, yeah, yeah I'll fess up. So I think there's a few things here, though. I mean, this is really interesting, and I'm really pleased Ben came back with his comments. So I, I mostly agree, and I'll explain what I mean. So I, I think he's absolutely right. In that circumstance where I think I probably did say to Callum Carter, here's the XP, you're going through with it, I totally get that, uh, that there's a real argument for using that darkness point, and, but then still allowing him not to do it, but then take some addiction problem an addiction penalty for for doing that so i like i like that idea and i think i certainly hold to that i do think though these things the darkness points are very situational 
And what I don't think came across in the discussion of that situation was any real understanding of the amount of time they'd been talking about doing this and how how Pete, who plays the character, was was really umming and ahhing about whether or, you know, he really wanted it, but he didn't want to cut the arm off. Um, they were running out of time because they'd just been in a firefight on Coriolis and they weren't far from the main thoroughfare. So there was a lot of stuff coming in there. So it's a very, very tense situation. I, I, I do totally agree. And in the way that we talked about earlier with Tony around his first come hatred, what you should do is is say, I'm activating your your problem. And then it's entirely up to the player to decide how they then uh, how they then run 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 that activation of the problem. And, and as Ben suggests, it could be that the player then decides that, no, I'm not going to do it, but then I have to take some penalty because I'm twitching, because I'm addicted to that, and I really ought to be doing it. Kind of depends how the player wants to play the addiction. If they've, if they're fighting it, or if they are sort of wholeheartedly embracing it as a, as something that they actually like to do. Pete, as a as a player with Carter, the character has pretty much embraced this addiction. So, uh, you know, I think it's narratively consistent and correct, and I think he he really wanted to do it anyway. But I take I take Ben's point on that absolutely. Yeah, and there's an interesting thing, of course, about you know the dynamics at the table. Now, I wasn't at your table, but I've I've killed zombies with your mate Pete, and um, he's a easygoing sort of fellow. And I reckon you would have probably picked up if there was any chance that he'd resent you forcing his hand like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, yeah, everyone sort of laughed and joked about it when it when I did pull up, pull out that darkness point, this would have been probably the first full scenario we played as well. So we're all learning the game a little bit, but it, it worked really well. The other point I would add is, I think very by the, by the very fact of activating a player's personal problem, as a GM, you almost are forcing their hand a little bit. You, are, you, 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 you might not be mandating specifically exactly what they do, but you are pushing them down a line of behaviour that they might not have wanted to have done if they, you know, under those circumstances. So again, there's a there's a grey area in here about how much or how little playing a darkness point under any circumstance is forcing a character down a particular specific line of line of behaviour or activity. I get the situation with the cybernetic arm is probably at one end of that spectrum, but if the darkness point isn't driving something, then it's probably not doing its job as well as it ought to. Yeah, fair enough. Okay, I've got another email yeah. from uh, from Ben, though. Shall we move on to that one? Yep. And uh, this one, I think um, we probably need a little bit longer. He, he goes into longer length here. And this was about our discussion of the gearhead talent in the last episode. But I do have to start off with the comment that goes, the podcast goes from strength to strength. <laughs> uh, but I have to take issue with your interpretation of gearhead versus technology skill. Sorry. From my reading of the rules as written, the technology skill lets you repair things with a success, and with a critical success you get a bonus effect. That's not a gear bonus, a bonus effect. So in play, what would that mean? On a successful use of the skill, I've repaired the item, restoring it to its former state. Huzzah! My cutting torch (laughs) now works again. Let's get to cutting into this hull and looting, Uh, sorry, reclaiming this abandoned vessel. If I get a critical success, I read that the above happens with an extra bonus effect. For example, it took less time. I didn't need to use any parts. I managed to strip out some unnecessary components, so I've gained some parts or a bonus die for my next technology roll. 
There's lots of cool potential there, limited only by the player and the GM's imaginations, but it's a positive side effect to the initial skill stroke task role. So how does the gearhead talent fit in? I'm glad you asked. From a reading of the rules as written, it would seem that you can A, create a whizzy one-use item, traditional MacGyvering or 18 locked in a shed. That's a neat get-out-of-jail thing and potentially worth the price of entry alone for a creative player. But the regular use ramps the technology skill up a notch. With Gearhead, whenever you repair something, as using Gearhead is a standard technology skill check, the same rules as above apply. Success, it's fixed. Critical, it's fixed with a cool bonus effect on top. But the fixed item also gains a gear bonus equal to your successes. Gearheads don't just fix, they soup up. A gearhead fixing our cutting torch with two successes now has a cutting torch with a gear bonus of plus two, added to the standard gear bonus for the item of zero. This thing is going to get through hulls and free cargo in no time at all. Anyhow, that's my reading of it, and I look forward to hearing your thoughts in response. Well, I've got a few things um, I'd like to say there. So I think I agree with Ben on the reading of the technology skill. I don't think uh, I don't think we, we you know we we we're at odds over over that understanding at all. It does come down though to uh, as we discussed last time a bit about interpretation. So the rules aren't cast iron. In the language, a GM can interpret things in in a number of different ways. And that's one of the beauties of, of Coriolis as a game, is there is there is a lot of scope within those rules to for different GMs to interpret stuff in their in their own way. On the gearhead, I hadn't read it the way that, that Ben's taken it to be. And in that, you know, you might repair something and that and that item gets a gear bonus. It makes me think I mean it's an interesting way of looking at it. But mm. but but if that's the case, the affet is gonna go around because he's got gearhead, it's gonna go around breaking everything he's got. And then repairing it, so he gets a gear bonus on it. it then, but is it a one-use gear bonus? Is it just the next time you use that? Well, gear? that's the question. My, I think my reading of of Ben's email, where he's talking about the gearhead fixing the cutting torch with two successes, now has a cutting torch with a gear bonus of plus two, and this is going to get through the hull and free lots of cargo in no time. That implies more than one use. So I think, so I think in in some ways Ben is coming to. The, the same conclusion as I am, but you know, if this item, if this cutting torch isn't a one-shot item, then it's basically, I think, what I'm saying in my gearhead, tweaked talent, but just in a different coloured set of grubby overalls. Uh, it's basically saying the same thing. I think the other thing for me, which perhaps didn't come out very clearly in, uh, in the previous podcast, is that I'm kind of looking at this with a slightly different emphasis on it. And, and as a player, actually, because I, uh, I really love the idea that Yaffet is a craftsman and he might, in due course, create his own line of spaceship modifications or his own line of specialist weaponry. And the gearhead for me allows him, or the, the gearhead that I've tweaked, I think allows him to become that kind of craftsman rather than be a Baracus of the A-Team, just taking his cornflakes packet and his pencil and turning it into a tank. I think there's a difference of emphasis there. Again, mm. it's totally up to the GM to decide how they want to play this. Some GMs might think, uh, and Ben, may, Ben, you might think that keep the gearhead, gearhead as it is and then make my idea about the craftsman thing a second-tier talent, as we talked about before. Make it an inventor or a craftsman talent that you then need to spend a few more points, uh, points getting to. But again, it's really interesting 
feedback uh, on that. It, it shows the different interpretations that you can have based on uh, on the rules that we've got. And I think that's great. I, lo- I love that variety. And um, from now on, every time I fix something, I'm going to expect a huge gear bonus, Matthew. <laughs> well, I you know I'm just reading that rule again, knowing exactly how your mind works. Um, and I think it is important, you know, it is a useful reminder from Ben that this is a talent that is totally free to use. So you can effectively use it on any repair or as many repair roles in the scenario that you, you want to use it on. And, uh, you know, just going back to the text, I know you read this out when you were talking about it before, but I'll read it out again. You love tinkering with gear and equipment. With a successful technology test, you can repair an item or jury rig a one-use contraption for a specific task. The number of sixes on your roll determines the gear bonus of the item. So, you know, that repair, in a way, I think this does mandate that, you know, that it gets um, it gets bonuses and maybe a normal, as, as Ben says, the bonus effect that you might get with a normal technology role wouldn't get you those those bonuses. It would get you other uh, other things like it doesn't take as long or whatever. Yeah, but I guess then though is is that repaired item just a one shot item then? Does yeah, it... I mean I think the way I'd run it personally is then for the next you know if you need your blowtorch for um for cutting into the hull, then you get the bonus on that role. But after that, it reverts to being a normal blowtorch. So if you want to do your sort of inventor style gearhead, then I think we still need your tweaked gearhead talent. But as you yeah. say, maybe we should think about that being a, a second talent, not necessarily a tiered talent, but just something a bit like gearhead, but with a very different effect, uh, you know, like an inventor talent or something prototype, or I don't know what you'd call it, yeah. um, that can sit alongside the gearhead talent for a more permanent effect. Anyway, that brings us towards the end of the programme and it's really good to get feedback like that from from Ben. Thank you very much for, yes, thank you, for ben. writing That's, in. Yeah, um, really appreciated. I will say that we can't reply to all emails individually, but if we can, we will feature them on the programme when they bring up an interesting discussion like this. I love saying that. <laughs> and we can't send back your artwork either for anybody who <laughs> used to yeah, watch exactly. Vision On or Take Heart. Um, so, yes, if you, if you do send us any pictures, um, yes, we won't be sending them back. Sorry. No, but we may feature them on the podcast, uh, yes. I guess, by describing them or something. I'm not sure uh, any, any of our listeners were on the verge of sending us any pictures. and it's good to see that all the various feedback methods are being used you know as we've said before send us an email write write to us on on g plus particularly if you're from the free elegant crew and you want to use our ideas in your campaigns it's great to get the acknowledgement for that absolutely and and just um yeah just it's great to hear from you all and have you got anything more to say dave other than thanks again everybody thanks Matthew and I'm um, looking forward to, to the next one actually so um, I think that's it from me so it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me and may the icons curse the adventures of your enemies You have been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. 
Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Fontfabric.